0: Yeah, I hope you guys had a great time looking in um, God's Word together as a group. I really enjoyed my group. Um, if you don't like your group, you can join mine next time. Um, so, um, just kidding. Um, but no, seriously, I hope the time together has been helpful, has been fruitful. I wish I had my group to study with me during the week, because I think that would have made this next 20 minutes better for everybody. But uh, So... Um, Anyway, um, let's go ahead and, and open just with a word of prayer. And um, you know, before, yeah, let's pray. All right, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. Really thankful, Lord, just for um, everyone here tonight. The desire to understand you, to know you, to know your word better. Lord, to honor and glorify you. Um, Lord, it is a treasure. It is a blessing to be able to study your word um, as individuals, as a group. Um, Lord, we know that in the past your word was not as accessible um, to many um, around the world and as richly and as abundantly as we have it here. Um, so Lord, help us to um, always be grateful, to always appreciate being able to spend time diving deep into your word um, and really just meditating on it, encouraging each other with it. And um, Lord, help us, help us to really in, um, encourage one another as we Engage with your Word together each each uh, week here at Praxis. So um, please bless the time and help us to, you know, get some more nuancing from your Word um, and just really enjoy Lord the treasures that you have for us tonight. And I pray you help us to apply it to our hearts first and to our minds. And as we go on in this life day to day, and we pray this humbly in Jesus Christ's name, Amen. Okay, um, also I wanted to mention too, before we begin, if you need to stretch, if you need to stand up, um, feel free to do that. You know, that's more encouraging to me that you want to stay awake instead of dozing off and I think you're praying for me or praying for this to end quickly, so <laughs> feel free to stand up and stretch. I, I welcome that. All right, so, you know, Psalm 23 is one of the most beloved and memorized passages in Scripture. And even though I wasn't a believer as a kid in high school, my mom had me try to memorize it at some point. And it was something like this. Jehová es mi pastor. Nada me faltará. En lugares pastos me hará descansar. Junto a reposo me pastorará." Okay, so she had me learn it in Spanish. What can I say? So that's what that was. Psalm 23 in Spanish. That was like the KJV version of that, if anybody cared to know that. Um, Anyway, what can I say? It was in Spanish. But one of the lines that's so masterful in that psalm is that the Lord, our shepherd, comforts us. Our Lord comforts us. The sheep are comforted simply by seeing and knowing that the shepherd has his rod and his staff. Or in other words, his club and the shepherd's crook. Now, why is it that they would be comforting to the sheep? to see that club and to see the shepherd's crook. Well, because with the one, the shepherd would guide and direct his sheep and even rescue them from the pit. And with the other, he would fight off his enemies or animals that would attack the sheep. And so the shepherd guides, but he also protects. And that's a beautiful image of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also an appropriate image of the shepherds or the pastors within a church but they are also called to guide and to protect. And so last week with the previous passage, we saw the qualifications of an overseer, of a pastor, as well as his responsibility to guide the sheep by holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. And in tonight's passage, we see that that responsibility of protecting the sheep by rebuking those who contradict that trustworthy word, the very word of God. Now uh, this is the shepherd's call to protect against false teachers. Now, uh, based on the structure of the passage, we could have broken this passage up into three distinct parts. The first part, from verses ten to eleven, could have been looking at the need to silence the false teachers. The second part, from verses twelve to fourteen, could have been looking at the command to rebuke the false teachers, and the third part could have been verses fifteen and sixteen, which helps us to under, uh, uh, helps us to identify the false teachers. So we could have broken the passage up like that in three parts. Um, and normally I wouldn't tell you all these kinds of details about, you know, why we're breaking up the passage this way or that. But I wanted to show you how we could have broken it up based upon the structure of the passage. Um, but instead, because we have shorter time tonight, I decided to just break it into two simple parts. So the first portion would have, is verses 10 to 14, um, as you look on your notes on the back of the sheet. Um, The the first portion, we'll call it the call to deal with false teachers. And so the second portion in verses 15 to 16, we call that the nature of false teachers. So let's begin with verse 10 and the call to deal with false teachers. So as Paul concluded at the description of an elder in verse 9, he stated that the elder or the pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught with one purpose to give instruction and another purpose to rebuke those who contradict the word of God. And verse 10 begins with that word for, which leads to the reason for the need of an overseer to rebuke. It's because there actually are many, there are many who are insubordinate or who are rebellious towards the authorities and who are full of empty talk and deception. There's many of those people who are in the church. And so that word for, again, links verse 9 to verse 10 and helps us to, you know, understand our literary context of our passage tonight. Now, Paul singles out right after that the circumcision party, the circumcision party, but he doesn't really elaborate on that too much, either here in this passage or in the rest of the book of Titus. So the details of the heresy that had spread throughout the church in in Crete isn't detailed, but it wouldn't be surprising it wouldn't be surprising at all if it was a works-righteousness-based salvation that they were propagating. So, in other words, the supposed need to add good works to your faith in order to be saved and made righteous before God. It wouldn't be surprising if that was the heresy that was propagating through Crete. So, after all, this is um, that's what the circumcision party was known for. They were saying that people needed to keep all of the Old Testament law in addition to their faith in order to be saved. Now, this was a heresy that is thoroughly addressed by Paul in the letter to the Galatians. And just to be clear, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So the gospel does not call for us to be doing good works and believing in Christ in order to be saved. The gospel instead calls us to repent and to believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to be saved. So there's no good works done on our part that would contribute to our salvation. Okay, I know that making a distinction here. However, good works will come as a result of our true salvation in Christ, which will be touched on throughout the book of Titus in the coming weeks. So it's absolutely critical to understand that and to keep those things distinct. Our own works do not contribute a single ounce to our salvation. But if we're truly saved by faith in Christ, then our new hearts will produce good works. Now, That's something that the Roman Catholic Church consistently confuses in their theology. I grew up in that system of theology, and it certainly is a works-based salvation that they would try to teach. So and, and also, so is practically every other religion in the world, other than biblical Christianity. All other systems of religion generally teach that you have to have works in order to enter into heaven and to be called righteous before God. But biblical Christianity does not teach that. Right? It teaches that salvation is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you can walk through the book of Galatians or the book of Romans And you would see all of that clearly laid out in those books. But this has been a heresy that the church has had to fight through against uh, throughout church history. We see it here in the scriptures. We still have to fight it also against these similar heresies today. Now Paul goes on um, to say very bluntly that these false teachers in Crete must be silenced. They must be silenced. And this is his call for the shepherds to protect the flock of God from the false teachers. So Paul is calling for the shepherds to silence them. Now, it's not really fleshed out how exactly one would go about um, silencing these false teachers, but based on the characteristics of the false teachers and the fact that they are teaching false teachings, some possible ways to try to go about silencing them would be through the clear teaching of the Word of God. If they're teaching false teaching, then we want to be teaching the truth with clarity and with conviction so that that would contrast the false teachings from the false teachers. Now also through our holy living, right? Our holy living would serve as a contrast with the lives of these false teachers, as we'll see when we continue through the passage. So Paul says that they must be muzzled because they are teaching what not ought to be taught, and as a result, as a result of their teaching, the teaching of things that not ought to be taught, they're upsetting whole families. Now it's likely that people or individuals were getting entangled in these false teachings and it was leading to all kinds of divisions within their own family and then as a result of that within even the whole church. But notice that these false teachers are doing this for what? They're doing it for shameful gain. They're doing this out of greed in their own hearts. Now contrast that. Contrast the motivation of these false teachers for selfish gain with that of what we saw in verse 7 with the shepherds, the shepherds who are called to be above reproach and that they must not be greedy for gain. Now that shows the heart motivation of these false teachers and that they're in it for the money. But we see that that is warned against in scripture, but we also see that that even is, is warned against and we see it in today. Um, it's alive, unfortunately, in the church in certain areas today. So we see it easily, very easily, with the prosperity preachers. Now, if you're not familiar with that, prosperity preachers are false teachers who pervert the Word of God by using it as a pretext for you to give them money so that you would be blessed. They use the Word of God as a pretext for you to give them money so that you would be blessed. I was going to share an example um, of that because in some ways it was quite funny and actually quite ridiculous. You know, but honestly, as I was reviewing it, I was thinking about it, I chose not to share it. And I know I would have gotten a great laugh and just, you know, we would have had a hoot over it, but I chose not to share it. And and, and honestly, it's because that in reality, that is actually quite revolting to see. And so we might find humor in it at first, but it's really revolting. Why? Because these prosperity preachers are literally using God's word to swindle poor and needy people out of money in order that they would have all of um, the money that they want for their own selfish greed. So in order for what they're teaching is that people would give their money to them so that they would receive a blessing from God. But in reality, they're just swindling the poor and needy people out of their own money. So that is actually quite disgusting and revolting. And so that's why I decided not to share that. Um, because they're teaching it, they're teaching those things out of shameful gain. They have this greed in their, in their hearts, and, and I didn't even want to just, you know, discuss all that to promote it, because like Paul is saying here, they need to be silenced. We need to not propagate those kinds of things. So they dishonor the Lord, and they dishonor his word, and they hurt the needy and the poor, and they take advantage of them. So that's an example that we would see today with false teachers. Now in verse 12, Paul goes on to quote a Cretan from ancient times who wrote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul affirms that testimony in the very next verse. Now you might think, wow, Paul, that, that's, that's a little harsh, bro. Uh, but Paul's just calling it like it is, bro. Uh, so, uh, now as harsh as that might sound... You know, in ancient literature, the Cretans were actually known to be liars, so they had a reputation of what Paul is actually saying here. So Paul's not trying to be mean. Obviously, he he left Titus there. He wants the church to flourish. He wants the church to be strengthened and to grow. He wants to see it mature. So clearly, Paul doesn't have a thing against the Cretans. Um, But Paul is being aware of the reality of the culture and the people that Titus is dealing with there in Crete because they're... They have these traits, and because these traits would be true, also the false teachers, Paul is giving this clear command to Titus to rebuke them sharply, to be severe in his rebuking of false teachers. And even though Paul is calling for this sharp rebuke, I also want you to notice his heart. Notice Paul's heart that he has also, in this sharp rebuke, an evangelistic hope for them. He has an evangelistic hope. For these false teachers. He wants them, yes, to be rebuked sharply that they may be sound in the faith, that they may turn away from their um, false teachings, that they would turn away from the Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Paul wants them to turn away from the false teachings and to turn actually to the truth. So Paul wants Titus and the elders in Crete to protect the flock against these false teachers but he also has hope that they'll repent and actually turn to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Now, just by way of quick application, notice how just in the first chapter, here in the book of Titus, uh, we see the, the truth, the word of God, the trustworthy word, the fact that God never lies, and all of these things have been called out numerous times just in our first chapter. Now, how is it that we're going to discern false teachings and false teachers in order to protect ourselves and in order to help protect others. We must know the truth. We must know God's Word as best as we can. We must meditate on the truth, and we must never compromise on the truth. So this is one way that we can love our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one way we can love others by knowing the Word of God, by bringing the truth to ourselves, Bringing the truth to others when we're tempted to believe a lie. That's one way that we can love our neighbor. Now, we must know the word of God well if we're going to discern between the shepherds and also discern from the wolves that are in sheep's clothing. So that brings us then to our next point in verses 15 to 16. Uh, Verses 15 to 16, we'll see the nature of false teachers. The nature of false teachers. Now, for the sake of time, we have to look at this briefly, but here Paul is describing the nature of false teachers and gives some more insight into their characteristics, describing what's going on on the inside, but also on the outside of these false teachers. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, which would describe a believer. That would describe a believer. All things and God's creation are pure to the believer, and they're all to be received with thanksgiving. That's called out in in the other letters to Timothy. But part of the heresies involved in the circumcision party would have been um, things like not eating certain foods or making sure to go through ceremonial washings and things like that. So to the one who is pure through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he understands that those things don't defile us by not... You know, by eating certain things or by not going through the ceremonial washings or whatever, not doing that does not defile us. But the circumcision party, in contrast, they would be holding to that—that that, um, those not doing those things would defile you. So, in contrast, the false teacher—they are unbelieving, and by nature they are defiled. So, no matter what they do, they will be defiled, and they will not be pure. Uh, it's also ironic that in seeking to be pure through these various rituals and the rule-keeping, they're actually defiling themselves by doing that. But notice that it's actually the inside of them that's defiled. It's their mind, right? It's their conscience. And it has to do with their way of thinking. That has to do with the mind, their way of thinking. And also it has to do with their ability to discern right from wrong. And that has to do with the conscience, right? Their ability to discern right from wrong, not wrong, like Chris Wong, sorry. Um, so, so their mind and their conscience is corrupt, and it's not functioning properly. It's defiled and out of step with the Word of God. As we know from the Scriptures and also from experience, what's going on on the inside in the heart is what defiles actually a person, and it's also what defines what their actions will be. So in other words, what's on the inside affects what comes out on the outside. Right? In verse 16 it says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now this little phrase should ring in our minds to Jesus' teaching when he was confronting the Pharisees and the scribes. Because they were also so concerned with the ceremonial washings and the purifications and eating with defiled hands but their hearts were so far from God. Now in Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 6 through 8, this is just a small picture of that. Um, It says there in verses 6 through 8 in Mark 7, and he, Jesus, said to them, to the Pharisees and the scribes, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So as is the case with the Pharisees and the Gospels, they professed to know God, but in reality they denied him by their works, and they even schemed to murder the Son of God on the cross. Now thus, these false teachers also profess to know God, but their actions tell otherwise. They do not truly know God. Their actions reveal that they do not truly believe in the gospel. And because of these things, because they don't truly know God, even though they profess to, because they lead people astray with their false teachings, because they do it for selfish and shameful gain, they are described by Paul as detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, as just a highlight of future weeks as we study Titus, this relationship between salvation and the results of good, and that resulting in good works, will be elaborated upon more as we continue our inductive study. So pay attention to that as, you, as we go forward. So the nature of false teachers helps us to understand the identification of the false teachers so that the shepherds can properly silence and rebuke them. Now this is all part of the shepherd's responsibilities in addition to his character qualifications to rebuke the false teachers, to protect the sheep. Now this, the shepherd is called to guide and to lead the flock of God, but he's also called to protect the flock of God against these false teachers. As we conclude, I want to zoom out for a bit and think about the situation of this letter. Okay, Paul is writing this letter to Titus, who's in Crete. The church is fairly new. He's left there to appoint elders. He has a reminder to him as the qualifications of elders, and they're called to silence and rebuke false teachers. All of this is happening in Crete in the early church. So my question to you is this. How does this inform or refine or change the way that you think about missions? How does it change the way you think about missions? So how does this help you think through which missionaries and what kind of missionaries you would want to support? I think this is a helpful exercise for us to think through as we try to understand the church. We try to understand What shepherding looks like in light of making disciples of all nations, right? This is early church context. Again, island in Crete, he's left there to appoint elders, teach the word of God, silence false teachers. How does this inform what we think about in missions, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you? So I hope that's an encouragement as we consider what we think about not only shepherding and how we ought to be shepherded in our own home church here at Lighthouse, but also how that might affect the mission field. And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for helping us tonight to enjoy time in your word, whether it was through the observations or the interpretations um, or applications of wanting to know you better, to know your word better, to submit ourselves to our shepherds, um, or also to seek how we can support uh, missionaries and which kinds of missionaries we would want to support out in the field. Lord, help us to always think through your word, to understand it properly, to have our inside, our heart changed and transformed, our mind and our conscience re- uh, transformed, but also, Lord, that we might live your glory on the outside and change our hearts lord and change our minds conform us into the image of christ we pray this humbly in jesus name amen